God's Word. This is uh, the final week in our series, Irrelevant, Does the Bible Matter? First week, we looked at the uh, foundational verse uh, for this entire series, and that is 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Key idea. I'm going to close with this today because that's the key idea for the series. If, uh, if our lives are going to be attractive and relevant and uh, something that other people are going to want in this increasingly skeptical and cynical world, this is huge. First, in our hearts, daily revere Christ as Lord and King. If we don't do that, then anything else we do is for naught because apart from Christ, we can do what? Nothing that matters, nothing that lasts, nothing that makes a difference for eternity. So, again, daily allow Jesus to rule and reign, put Jesus first, allow the Holy Spirit of Christ to shine bright through us, and then, 1 Peter 3.15 says, people will notice and ask us why. Why? Why do you follow this Jesus? Why, why do you put your hope in Jesus? Why do you trust Jesus daily in your lives? And our response must be with gentleness and respect. Make sure we don't just smash them with truth. Week number two, we examine the key core central fact of the Bible, which, what's the bullseye of the Bible? It, it would be the death the shed blood, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is the bullseye of the Bible. If, if that's true and provable, then suddenly this book becomes so relevant and so believable and so trustworthy for our lives. We looked at six pieces of evidence uh, for the empty tomb as historical fact. And if I go through those six pieces right now, there will be no time for the final Message. So we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to encourage you, you go to www.walloonchurch.com. You can listen to that. If you didn't catch it or need to be reminded, you can listen not just to that sermon, but the last 10 sermons are on there. Week number three, and today's will be on, Jody usually puts them on on Monday morning, right Jody? So tomorrow morning this one will be on. Uh, examine the words of Jesus as he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, week number three, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Jesus gives this warning, storm's coming. There's a storm coming for you, Glenn, and you better be aware uh, it'll smash our lives with things like disease, death, depression, divorce, and it's not a question of if, what's a question of? Yeah. Some of you are right in the middle of one. Some of you just had one finally pass, and some of you this next week, another storm's going to head your way. And Jesus says, if you don't build your life on me and my words and my truth, when the storm comes, it'll wreck you. It, it will literally destroy and reduce your life to rubble. Here's the promise, though. If you'll do the hard work of daily... Here's what he says, building your life on the truth of Jesus and his book, build your finances, build your marriage, build the way you raise your children, build the way you talk based on God's book, uh, 
then when the storm hits, betrayal, accidents, sickness slams into your life, it's still going to hurt like crazy, right? When a storm hits, it brings tears and pain and drama and all sorts of things, but you'll be able, it says, to stand. You'll be able to stand in Christ. He'll, he'll give you the ability to stand up during the storm. And that's when people sit up and take notice. That's when people say, you know what? There's something about you that I think uh, is missing in me. And suddenly now they're going to ask why. You understand when, when we live that way, this book becomes so relevant. Because you can share, well, I'm building my life on Jesus and His truth. And suddenly now people will say, I, I want that, I need that, and then we get to share with gentleness and respect. Last Sunday, we examined some of the fingerprint evidence that the Old Testament required the Messiah and the New Testament to match perfectly. Started with Micah 5 and verse 2. Micah 5, 2 says, the Messiah must be born in what town? Anybody? Bethlehem. And if... If anybody claims to be Messiah and is born in Chicago or Pelston or Shanghai, just listen close, they're a fraud. The only place a Messiah, the one the Old Testament said is coming, can be born is Bethlehem. Jesus matched it perfectly. Hosea 11.1, we looked at Messiah must spend some time in Egypt and anybody claiming to be Messiah that never been to Egypt? Any of you uh, ever been to Egypt? About four of you. The rest of us, if we claim and we haven't gone, you're an imposter. You claim to be... No, but Luke 2, 19-23, Joseph and Mary flee from Bethlehem to Egypt. Why? Because Herod thought he was the king of the Jews, and he was going to wipe out all the little boys because he was the only king of the Jews in his mind. We also looked at 2 Samuel, which reports uh, a really important promise to King David. The Messiah must be able to establish a clear genealogy to King David. No provable bloodline, you're a fake. You're a fraud. You're not the real Christ. You're not the anointed one. You're a fake and a fraud. Matthew 1, 5-17, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, they're right in the records, provable an ancestor of King David. And if that's not enough, Luke chapter 3, 23 to 32, we find that Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, was also in the bloodline of King David. That's way better than a double rainbow, don't you think? A double fulfillment of prophecy. Way better than a double rainbow. Anyway, uh, we looked at Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, the Messiah to come. He's going to have the power to open eyes of the blind, enable the ears of the deaf to hear, heal the legs and the backs of those in wheelchairs. Matthew 11, we looked at verses 2 to 6, evidence again, a perfect match. That's what Jesus was all about. John eleven forty seven. religious leaders say, he's doing so many miracles, everybody in this entire country are going to believe. And they plotted to kill Jesus because of the miraculous power that he had. Today, we're going to look at a little more evidence. Is that okay? A little more evidence. Uh, 
And again, this time we're going to look at the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. It's called Passion Week. Uh, lots of requirements for the Messiah to match. And if someone claiming to be the Christ doesn't match in every way, again, don't listen to them. Because we're looking for the one who's going to come and take away the sin of the whole world. Locate with me in your Bible, on your phone, Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, very interesting psalm, the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. But what's interesting, before we stand and read, I, I, I want to just encourage you, you watch and see what kind of death is recorded that the Messiah must die. Here's what's interesting. This kind of death, crucifixion, would not be um, discovered, if you will, a grisly discovery or invented. Maybe that's a better word. This type of death wouldn't be invented for another 700 years by the Persians. And then the Romans would steal it from the Persians and make it even more awful. Okay? So just understand, King David is inspired to write down about a method or uh, a way to be killed, um, and it hadn't been invented yet. It's not going to be 700 more years. Ready? Stand with me if you're able. Let's read the first 18 verses of Psalm chapter 22. Ready? Here we go. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you for inspiring King David to write this down exactly as you required. And thank you, Lord, that you not only got it down the way you wanted, you 
literally preserved it and watched over it all these years. 3,000 years later, we continue to be able to study and enjoy your book. So uh, thank you that we gather and we get to sing and we get to give to your church and your kingdom. What a blessing. And now as we dig in, Lord, help us to understand and listen and concentrate and tune in to what your Old Testament says is required of the Messiah to come. Lord, I'm asking that it would be more than just academics and facts. Lord, I believe you have something to say to each of us personally, specifically, individually. So we're listening. Would you speak clearly? Help us to tune in and hear you. Drive home what applies to us, drive home what applies to us as a church family as well. And uh, finally, Lord, we just want you to know we're grateful that this greatest challenge in life we all deal with, sin, has been taken care of on the cross. So if there's sin that's between us and you, that we've built, walls, barriers that we've constructed, Lord, would you point it out right now? And as you convict us of that sin that we haven't dealt with yet, we're going to turn, do the 360 and run to the cross. Because that's the place of forgiveness and cleansing and healing. That's the place we get back in right relationship with you. So Lord, as we stand beneath the cross, things that you call sin, we're going to call them the same thing. What you're making clear... Lord, that's sin. We missed the mark. As followers of your son Jesus, you've already marked our accounts, paid in full. We're going to draw on that account right now. Wash, cleanse, purify. Head to toe, Lord. Tear down those walls between us and you. All the church family at Walloon Lake said with one united, strong voice, be seated. Psalm 22, it's called the fifth gospel because it's so repeated so much in the New Testament. Um, King David, uh, he's likely the writer of this psalm inspired to record with precision details of a Roman method of crucifixion, as I said earlier, hadn't even been invented yet. Okay? So, now we dig in, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Matthew 27, 46 puts those exact words on Jesus' lips. In Aramaic, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? There's no accident here. Give me your eyes. Jesus wants everybody to know, everybody there watching him on the cross, uh, watching him die, and he wants us to know, Psalm 22, that's talking about me. He, He wants us to understand the person that King David was inspired to write about, that's me, and and that's what I'm quoting, that's on my mind, because I know 
I am the fulfillment of what King David was inspired to write down. That's what I'm going through right now on the cross. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I'm the one that's been predicted will hang on this cross. Slide down to verse 6, Psalm 22. It says, but I'm a worm, I'm not a man, scorned, despised, mocked, hurling insults, shaking their hands and heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. He's delighting in it, let the Lord rescue him. Again, I want you to understand, when you go to Matthew 27, it's exactly what happened. The crowds were hurling insults, shaking their fists at Jesus, the chief priests, teachers of the law, mocking Jesus. He can't save himself. He's, he claims to save others, but he can't even save himself. So, verse 1, separation from the Father. Jesus saying, that's me. Verses 6 to 8, the humiliation of Jesus. Um, slide down to verse 14, the agony of Jesus. Again, written a thousand years. Roman method of crucifixion was invented about 300 years after this. But this actual event was a thousand years later when, when David actually writes. Here we go. Uh, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's turned to wax. It's melted within me. Case for Christ, if you read it, has a whole section uh, why that would be. It, it makes perfect sense medically, verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Again, case for Christ, uh, interviewing medical people saying, yep, that's exactly what would happen to someone who was being crucified. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. Probably talking about the, uh, the crowds that are yelling and probably talking about his executors, the Roman army. Then notice what it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People are staring and gloating. They're dividing my garments and casting lots for them. Um, let's just go through a few of those uh, right now, those details. Uh, they put Jesus on a Roman cross, and all of those details, when you go to the new section, match right on the money, okay? Uh, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. look at my hands, my feet. Uh, in Luke 24, 39, he's showing them his crucified hands and his crucified feet. And you go to Revelation chapter 1, the same thing, talking about the pierced hands and the pierced feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that's a match. And I would argue, try to think of a method of execution where they're piercing hands and feet that's not crucifixion. It's like, wow, that, that matches exactly. Uh, verse 18, they divide my clothes among them, cast lots for my garments. Spot on match. John 19, 23, and 24. Actually, all four of the Gospels record this match. That uh, Roman soldiers are throwing dice to de determine who won the undergarment of Jesus. Interesting. That, that, was, that was an important match. So if, if the Messiah, as he dies, if, 
If the guards aren't gambling for his undergarment, then it's a fake, it's a fraud. An exact match. And, and I would argue there was no way that, that a person up on a cross can make people gar- gamble, excuse me, or throw dice for the right to win the clothing. Okay, that, that matches and you say, whoa. A thousand years before the cross of Calvary, God the Father knew, God the Father planned with extreme precision what God the Son was required to endure. You understand that? You see it here and you say, yep, why would he do that? Why would God the Father, with such extreme precision, plan such a gruesome death? Because he knew this was required, are you ready? To save sinners like me and sinners like you. This was going to be required, and that's exactly what Jesus does uh, for each and every one of us. Every arch, every loop, every whirl. The fingerprints that King David wrote down here in Psalm 22, they match Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I would argue there's never been another death that matches. Precision is amazing. Okay? I want to quickly give you four more examples. Okay? We're not going to spend a lot of time because if we do, we won't have time to finish. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, Zechariah 9 and verse 9 tells us that when the king, the Messiah, comes, there's a requirement. He must come lowly riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So if the Messiah doesn't come riding in and everybody acknowledge he is the king, he's the Messiah, if that never happens, that's not the real Messiah. Matthew 21, verses 8 to 10. Guess what happened on Palm Sunday? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, and the crowds go crazy, don't they? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! And they're waving palms, and they're recognizing this is the Messiah. That's a perfect match, you understand? Give me another one. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. I'd encourage you to read it because it's a little interesting in your reading and there's 30 pieces of silver involved and then in those verses then um, they wind up throwing the 30 pieces of silver at the potter. And as you read it back in Zechariah 11, 12 and 13, you say, well, that's kind of strange. But then when you go to Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10... It clicks. Uh, Jewish religious leaders paid Judas Iscariot. How much did they pay him? Anybody remember? 30 silvers. Yeah, I did. Uh, to betray Jesus, right? 30 sil- pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Now, um, Judas now is sad, um, and, and he realizes what an awful mistake he's made. So he brings the money, not in a nice way, but he throws the 30 pieces of silver back at the religious leaders. And they use that 30 pieces of silver to buy what? Anybody remember? A potter's field. And remember back in Zechariah, you got 30 pieces of silver being thrown at the potter. And now Judas is throwing that betrayal money back at them and they buy 
potter's field. I'm just telling you, it's like, whoa. Uh, third, Exodus 12, 40, uh, excuse me, 21 to 46, explicit details regarding the Passover lamb. Remember the nation of Israel, they're in captivity. Uh, there's been these plagues. Now you have this final plague, and there's this final instruction, verse 46, Exodus 12, don't break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. Now just pause for a moment. Doesn't this seem like kind of like a strange instruction? Okay, I want you to cook this lamb up without spot, without blemish. I want you to put the blood on the doorframe of the house, uh, but be careful, don't break any bones. Okay, we'll do it your way, okay? Uh, then you go to John 19, and I'm, they did it for thousands of years. The Jews were about to celebrate Passover, right? Uh, John 19, remembering the lamb whose blood is on the doorpost, spared the firstborn of all who believed and applied the blood, okay? Then it's getting close to Passover. That's Passover weekend. And they said, we can't have criminals, we can't have this Jesus hanging on a cross during Passover, go break their legs and they'll be dead soon because they can't push up and breathe. So once you break your legs, you're going to suffocate. Go break their legs so that they're not up there during Passover. That's basically what they said. So they go, come to Jesus and what did they find when they come to Jesus? He's already dead. So they don't break his legs. They don't need to break his legs because he's already dead. Not one of his bones was broken. Why? Catch this. Because Jesus is indeed the Passover lamb. Tracking with me? Suddenly that instruction back in Exodus 12, suddenly now uh, it makes sense. Because it was about the perfect Passover lamb that was going to come, and that was Jesus Christ, and none of his bones were going to be broken. So don't break any of the bones of the Passover lambs as you celebrate year after year after year for 2,000 years until Jesus on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, would you, would you find that? If you have your Bible or on your phone, this is one of the most amazing chapters in the Old Testament. And I'd love to just walk you through Isaiah 53 and... and being assigned with the rich in death, verse 9, and all the things that point clearly to Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb, okay? So it's, it's such a powerful chapter. I've read many Orthodox rabbis discourage their followers from reading Isaiah 53. And here's what they say. It's far too confusing. Just skip over it. And I would argue, no, 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 it's far too convicting. Skip over it, okay? Um, I'm telling you, this, uh, this is a chapter to savor. How, how many of you are into homework? If I gave you homework, you might, you might consider doing it, okay? Yeah, thank you. The rest of you, we'll talk later. Um, I'd encourage you, read Psalm 53 two, three times, slowly, and just savor all that the Lord inspires Isaiah to write down about the coming death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's just like, whoa, this is good stuff. Every delta, every whirl, every arch, every loop, every ridge that 
Isaiah meticulously lays down for the Messiah to come. I'm just telling you, it's powerful. It's amazing. Anybody know how, how long uh, it was that Isaiah wrote? It was 750 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 750 years he's writing this down. And, and as you do your homework this next week, just go, wow. If everything in here isn't exactly as Isaiah laid it out, I'm not believing it. But if it lines up, if it's a match, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that was promised 750 years earlier. Last week we talked about atoms. That's an atom, y'all. Um, and, and I don't pretend to be a, a great chemist. Um, but I just want you to understand, this is like... The basic block of matter is atoms that consist of protons, electrons, and Jimmy neutrons. So there you go. That's atoms. Um, here's what I found, and I, and I found this in several different sources. According to smart people that it seems like they know what they're talking about, how many atoms um, are there on earth? You know, in our planet, how many atoms, smallest building block uh, of matter, okay? It's 10 to the 50th power, and, and I'll exp anyway, there, the conversion rate is 1.33, and I read it like five times, and I'm saying, I'm not explaining that. I'm just telling you, the conversion rate is 1.33, uh, and then add 50 zeros, got it? It's a big number, okay? It's big. And then I found, and this was pretty consistent too, well, how many atoms in the entire universe? Everywhere. Um, and here's what they said. Uh, same conversion rate, 1.33, and I still don't understand why, but it's, that's the conversion rate. So, it, and it's 10 to the 80th power. 10 to the 80 zeros after it, Okay? Now, here's what we, what we concluded with. For one person to fulfill all the Old Testament fingerprint requirements that Messiah had to perfectly match, and there's like over 40 of them. There's over, some say as many as 300. I, I don't see 300. I see about 40. And the match has to be perfect, spot on every time. If there's any time that it's not spot on, uh, then then it's, Jesus isn't the Christ. Things like must be born in the tiny village of Bethlehem, uh, must have spent some time living in Egypt, must be a bloodline provable descendant of King David. We already said Jesus, both sides, Mary and Joseph. Must have a ministry that makes blind see, lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf come, can hear, dead come back to life must die on a Roman cross with very specific happenings. Things like uh, must uh, have people gambling for your clothes underneath. Don't break any bones. Must be pierced in hands and feet. Must ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Must have the crowds when he comes riding in. Hail him as Messiah. Must be betrayed by someone with 30 pieces of silver. And then have the potter's field involved. 
And then as you read Isaiah 53, all of those details in Isaiah 53, they have to be matched. Here's, here's the thought. Mathematician Peter Stoner says, uh, with precision, Jesus matches all of the fingerprint requirements that the Old Testament would require. Okay? And here's what you need to know. The number that it would take for someone just accidentally, by accident, meet all of those requirements is a number much larger than all of the atoms in the universe. Let that settle in. That number is, is astronomical. You know, and, and I would just say, fat chance. Not going to happen. No way, no hobble. The Bible is relevant because the fingerprint evidence is strong and clear and provable and overwhelming. I'll say it again. The Bible suddenly becomes relevant because that just doesn't happen by chance. No, no. God was up to something and it's strong and it's clear and it's provable and overwhelming and that kind of book is so relevant for our everyday lives. Yep. The reason the Bible is questioned and doubted more and more, and I'm just telling you, it's true, it is, and, and it's gro the numbers who are doubting and skeptical about God's book is growing. But I would argue it really has little or nothing to do with the trustworthiness of God's Word. Jesus and His Word are not changing us from the inside out. That's the problem. Let me say it again. Jesus and His book um, are not causing us to look more like Jesus. Oh yes, I love Jesus. Oh yes, I believe in the Bible. And then our lives don't look any different from those around us who reject Jesus and don't believe in God's Word. You see the problem? The problem is, we say this is God's Word and Jesus is my Savior and He's changed me, but we don't live changed lives. That's the problem. That's where we look irrelevant. That's why people are looking at us and saying, you know what, you talk about this Jesus and you talk about this Bible, but it must not be true because I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or I'm a nun, none of the above, and you, just, you talk just like me. You do everything I do. When the storm hits, you behave just like I behave. You blame everybody. You lie constantly. You don't talk or act any different from me. That's why this book looks irrelevant, because our lives, sadly, are irrelevant. And here's what's changed. Are you ready? People in 2018, we live in a post-Christian culture. They're just more honest and blunt than people used to be. My opinion is, um, this has been going on 20, 30 years ago. People thought the same thing. Oh, you're a Christian? <laughs> really? Uh, and, and, but they just wouldn't call you out on it. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't say it clearly. Now, in today's culture... Um, they'll, they'll just say it. If your Jesus and your Bible are doing nothing to make you different from agnostic me, no thanks. No thanks. Don't need it. Don't want it. Not interested. If we're losing influence today, 
And we are. And, and the numbers really are astonishing. I would argue the problem is with us in the mirror, y'all. And I'll include myself. If we're not daily taking the time to revere Jesus Christ as Lord and King, if we're not daily allowing His Spirit to control us and shining bright, then we look pretty irrelevant, don't we? We, we don't look any different than the rest. And people are going to call us today on it. And people are going to say, no, no, I, I, don't think, I don't think I need that. I don't think I want that. I'm, I'm going to give you one final thought, okay? Parents, pull your toes in, grandparents. You know why our children and our grandchildren are walking away from the faith? Because they see it on Sunday in us, and the rest of the week, they ain't seeing it. And if they're not seeing it in their parents on a day, I'm not talking perfection, but it, regularly seeing Jesus alive and making a difference in your life, if they're not seeing that, then they're going to assume this is just irrelevant religious talk. And it's not life-changing. And I don't think I really need it. And sadly, millions of our kids and our grandkids are walking away from the faith. What, what's the answer? How do we get relevant? Are you ready? It's up to us to daily revere Christ as Lord. Get serious about this Jesus stuff. Get serious about lining your life up with this book. And here, I promise you, suddenly your life will get very relevant. Understand? When, when Jesus is daily my king and I'm attempting by God's grace to line my life up the best I know how, little by little growing, that's real. That's something I want. That's something that's different. That's something that stands out. And I promise you, the people around you will notice. And they're going to start asking, what's different about you? With gentleness, with respect, we get our opportunity to speak up. Right? Let's pray. Lord, uh, hard looking in a mirror and looking at myself, so I just acknowledge that. But I'm grateful that the evidence for your book is strong and overwhelming. I'm grateful, Lord, that uh, the matches that you uh, meet again and again and again prove that your book is alive and it's truly inspired, and it's trustworthy, and it's something that we can line our lives up. And thank you, Lord, for the bullseye of your book, your son Jesus, willing to take our place on a cross, willing to shed his blood for our greatest problem. We're sinners. Willing to take our place in the tomb and early Sunday morning, literally, bodily, physically, arising from the dead. Lord, thank you. Don't, we don't have to check our brains at the door to say yes to those facts. Wow, is the evidence strong. So today, December 9th, can be that day where you say, you know what, Jesus? You really are the Messiah. You really are the Savior. You did take the hit from me and my sin problem. You took my place in the grave. You arose from the dead for me. 
Those are the facts. You can't just have them in your head and know the facts. You need to, by faith, believe those facts as a choice of your will for you. Jesus, I trust that you did that for me. And there's one more verb there, 1 Corinthians 15. And by faith, Jesus, I receive, believe the facts, receive you as my Savior, Lord, King. Don't leave as we close this service without saying the facts are strong, they're compelling, it's overwhelming evidence. And therefore, Lord, that draws me to you. And I'm ready to say yes to you, Jesus. The cross, the shed blood, the empty tomb. Right where you're seated, Jesus. I believe those facts for me. You took my place. You died for me. You shed your blood for my great problem in life. I'm a sinner. But victoriously, you arose from the dead. You did that for me. Right where you're seated, you can make that choice. Believe, and then you can take that final step in Jesus. I receive you as Savior, Lord, King of my life. Evidence is Wow, compelling. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be one of your children. Take charge of my life right now. And it could be some of you've done that, but the reality is you haven't been revering Christ as Lord daily. Step into a relationship with Jesus, that's great, wonderful step. But that's just the beginning. And then you got to grow and mature and become more like Christ and daily allow Him to shine bright through you. Perhaps you're here today and the reality is, most days, not so much. Not much Jesus shining bright, not much fruit of the Spirit hanging from your life. Anyone say as we close, Lord, I'm ready to commit. (laughs) I get it. I don't want the people I love, the people around me, not seeing you, Jesus, as my king daily. I don't want that, my children to see that, that it's not real day to day. I don't want my grandchildren. I don't want my coworkers. I don't want my friends and neighbors. I don't want the people I go to school with. I want them to see Jesus is real and alive and living in me. It's a process. But today, I'm going to take that first step, Jesus. (laughs) This week, help me to daily invite you to rule and reign your spirit alive, your fruit splashing on the people around me. Work in us, Lord. We want to be relevant. We want to be attractive we, we want to make a difference for your son, Jesus. May the watching world ask us, why? Why are you putting your hope in Jesus Christ? Help us to be ready to respond. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray.